0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we mark the Feast of the Epiphany, which closes out our celebration of the Christmas season and also bridges us into a new season, the season of Epiphany Tide. Epiphany, the word means manifestation or a a showing forth of something new. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an epiphany is defined as an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. And all three of those words, discovery, realization, and disclosure, are very much at work in the story that Matthew tells about the journey of the Magi. Magi. Now, that's, that's the word that Matthew uses, not wise men, as it's often translated, and certainly not kings. Magi. It means magician or astrologer or interpreter of dreams or other strange happenings. But Matthew's not talking about the sort of people who do magic tricks or write the horoscopes for the free press. Magi from the east, Matthew says, and he's probably pointing to Persia, perhaps to members of the Zoroastrian religion, who had a very sophisticated cosmology view of the universe and a highly refined system of tracking the stars and the planets. These magi are consummate outsiders to the faith of Israel, people of an entirely different culture, nation, religion, and way of seeing the world. Now, this reading comes very close to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, but at the very end, he shows Jesus instructing his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, And in this, Jesus effectively unleashes the gospel on the whole of the world, on all people, all nations, not just on Israel. This is not a story narrowly for Israel, but instead it is for all. And that's part of what Matthew is saying with this story of the Magi so early in his account. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. The star watchers in Matthew's story have discovered something in the heavens that has alerted them to the arrival of a new king. That's their worldview, you see. To see something unexpected in the night skies, a star or a planet or perhaps even a comet, to read it as revealing something new and significant is about to take place on the earth. And so they've set out on a journey so they can bear witness to this event that they have first seen in the stars, so they can pay tribute, pay homage to this newborn king Well, as he tells his story, Matthew is unflinching in showing that it is through their worldview, their religion, their practices, that these magi are drawn close to the truth. If you stop and think about that for a minute, you realize that part of what he's saying here is that God can be glimpsed, perhaps partially, but God can yet be glimpsed, Even through this whole other way of understanding and seeing the world, that's significant. But it's not quite enough to take the travelers all the way to Bethlehem. Seeking a king, they quite reasonably go to the royal home in the royal city of Jerusalem. Where better to find a kingly baby? they will still need the insight of the Hebrew scriptures in order to take them that next and final step. Well, it's at the palace that they encounter Herod. He's a king with a rather thin claim to the title king of the Jews, very thin. He has an equally thin connection to the faith expressed in the Hebrew scriptures. The family line of the Herods was notoriously brutal. Much of that brutality was actually turned in on itself as one Herod after another attempted to hold tight that place of power, and it sometimes meant killing their own family members. But even at that, even holding that throne, they were really little more than puppet kings allowed to hold their throne by the Roman Empire in the empire's management of the politics of the land. Well, King Herod is appalled at the news of the birth of a king because if that's true, his own hard-won power and his own thin claim to that throne would be challenged. Calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people Herod inquired of them where Messiah was to be born, because he didn't know the scriptures. He might have been king of the Jews, but that really wasn't where he located his heart. So he had to call the experts. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And so he says to the Magi, go to Bethlehem. That's where the scriptures say a baby would be born. Go to Bethlehem. And when you find this child, return to me and tell me so that I too may go and pay him homage, his due respect. (laughs) Right. Herod here is not treating the Hebrew scripture as a source of truth, but rather as a tool, as a source of information, so he can put to work his own gains. The chief priests and the scribes, they may know the scriptures, but here they're not treating them as a source of truth either. They don't go to Bethlehem. They don't follow that path, even though they know the text. They provide the information, but they stay put in Jerusalem. Maybe they're skeptical of the claims of the Magi, or maybe they're just content to hold their own roles within this system that's been built by Herod and the empire. The Magi, again, the consummate outsiders, they're the ones who heed the message and go. They have risked much to travel this far. They are prepared to hear this word from the scriptures and to risk one more leg of the journey. Well, you know how it plays out. They do go to Bethlehem, they do find the child. It's away from the royal city. They they find the child born in a most unremarkable place to rather unremarkable peasant parents. Hardly what they would have imagined when they set out. Yet they still pay him his due respect. And they still offer these royal gifts that they've brought. Here we see that dictionary definition of epiphany in its fullness. Discovery and realization and disclosure they experience all three. Their story has been marked by a willingness to set out on an arduous long journey. To receive insight and truth from the Hebrew scriptures. Scriptures not their own. On that journey of discovery, there is powerful disclosure and this whole new realization. They have seen in the face of a baby, a peasant baby in a no-count backwater town. They've seen in that baby's face something of the face of God. Then warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their country by another road. And as you know, Herod will not sit still with this, no, no. Instead, he sends death squads into Bethlehem to kill all of the male children under two, to cut his losses as best he can, to do anything possible to deal with that birth. And it forces Mary and Joseph to flee with their child as refugees. How many times over the centuries, how many times over the past decades has something like this been played out somewhere in our world? As a tyrant schemes to maintain control at all costs, pushing people out as refugees or sending in those death squads. When it comes to the politics of power, the more things change, the more they remain the same. It's a willingness to both risk the initial journey and then to trust the word they receive that takes the Magi to their destination, to their epiphany. That, in a real sense, is what lies at the heart of this season of Epiphany Tide. The discovery and realization and disclosure of what God is up to comes through both risk and trust. Now, as most of you are aware, these past six months have been very hard ones for me personally, marked by deep sorrow and loss. And I've been given the opportunity over this first month of the Epiphany season to set out on a sort of journey, which I am aware is going to require a good deal of trust and a good deal of risk on my part. I have a wise and trusted colleague and mentor in Halifax, and he's arranged for me to engage a month-long private guided retreat. And so on Tuesday, I will board a plane for Halifax to begin that month, a month largely spent in solitude and silence. I will be living in a room at the University of King's College, attending four chapel services there each day, meeting regularly with this man as my spiritual director, journaling, doing directed reading, learning to write, to draw an icon, praying, and simply being. And again, for, most, for the most part, this will be lived in contemplative silence. In a letter I received from my spiritual director earlier this week, he noted, I shall not ask you to preach or teach while you are here. This would encourage you back into what you already know and what you offer to others constantly in your ministry. Rather, this will be a time of openness to the Spirit for you without any pressure to produce. He's also told me very clearly not to come thinking that I am going to fix something, solve something, achieve something, answer something, produce something, or even heal something. No, I am to enter this experience simply open to receiving what the Spirit of God might offer, full stop. It is daunting. I have to confess, but also most welcome. Discovery, realization, and disclosure of what God is up to comes to us through both risk and trust. And I don't know that I've ever been more aware of that than I am right now in this season. So I'd ask you over this month to pray for me and for my spiritual director, Father Gary Thorne, And in your own lives, as you enter this season, in your own contexts, I invite you to try to see those places that for you require both real risk and foundational trust. In that, you will see something of the light of epiphany and live into it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.